The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including ACLA Impact, Seed Equity Ventures, and Clean Energy Advisors. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Our guest today is Peter Fusara, who is the founder, CEO, and uh, the big boss at Global Change Associates. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Welcome. A pleasure to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Peter, you you go way back, and you're, you're, you're probably my age, but you, you got your start in... Uh, sustainability and and in worrying about the environment before a lot of us did. Uh, truly a pioneer. Uh, tell us a little bit about your connection to that first Earth Day back in 1970 that that uh, impacted, influenced, maybe changed your life. Yeah, it actually goes back even further. When I was a child, I was uh, adjacent to 70 acres of land called the school property. So it had a duck pond and a brook and trees, and I used to play in the woods and use my sleigh. And so I really became an ardent environmentalist very young. And then fast forwarding in 1970, I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, and they had the first Earth Day, and I'm there with my solar-powered T-shirt. So it's kind of been my DNA for sustainability, green, impact investing. All these things didn't have names at that time. Uh, it's just something that I've been very dedicated to. And then on, by happenstance or luck, uh, my career path has been very intertwined of energy and environment, energy being the largest polluting industry in the world, and always looking for a more sustainable, cleaner pathway. You know, this is an exciting moment in history, I think, because of... Because of Peter, it sounds like we're getting a little echo. It sounds like we're getting a little echo. Yes, that you uh, turn your volume on your speakers down a little bit, and that should reduce that. I apologize. But I think, okay. Peter, that we're at an interesting time in history. You must see it, too, that uh, we're at a point where the economic incentives for uh, renewable energy seem to be almost overwhelming uh, independent of tax. Uh, what's your take? Yes, the economics are very simply that solar and wind particularly are now at grid parity. And with the tax incentives that were passed by Congress last December, it's kind of icing on the cake. But we've actually seen a radical cost reduction in the last five, seven years in both solar and wind become very economical and also deployment is now global. It's all over the world. It's not just the U.S. and Western Europe. It's developing countries, Africa, India, China, etc., that now find that this pathway is much more affordable. Before, it was very expensive, frankly. It, it, we Grid parity, this is, this is a I hadn't heard that term before. I'm so glad you shared it with me. I've been looking for the words for that for a while now. But, but as we cross that threshold, it seems to me the world has no excuse for not moving to renewables. Uh, 
what are the reasons you're hearing? What are the what are the remaining reluctances that people have to to the shift? What are the barriers? Well, the biggest barrier is energy storage. When the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we have a problem with renewables. The good news is there's a lot of activity in battery storage technology, fuel storage technology, and even hydrogen technology, which I'm very aware and working in right now. So we're going to fix that problem of energy storage in the next two to three years. So that's not going to be the issue anymore. But it has been a problem that fossil energy runs 24-7 baseload power plants. That's coal, natural gas, and not so much oil, and very little oil in the U.S., has had this basically dominant play of energy storage. So renewables have had kind of this black eye. If it's not windy, if it's not sunny, we're going to have problems. The better news is we're actually seeing a renaissance in the natural gas industry as well. So I actually look at natural gas and renewables as complementary and not competitive. And on top of that, natural gas has lower carbon intensity than coal and oil. So we're actually looking at a, a tremendous reduction in emissions that people are kind of flabbergasted. It's showing up statistically in the last several years. And it's going to get better because you're going to see cheaper energy costs, that's very contrarian to what people think, as well as more deployment of clean energy. Well, this is a great conversation. I want to, I want to drill down a little bit on the, uh, the complementary nature of natural gas. And I'm thinking that one of the things that makes it complementary is unlike a coal power plant that has to sort of run constantly, you can scale the production or turn off and on a natural gas plant more readily. Am I thinking about that in the right way or am I misunderstanding how these things work? No, no, you're absolutely right. There, there are two markets in energy when it comes to electric power generation. One is baseload 24-7, seven days a week energy. And then we have something called peak energy. Peak energy is for that very hot summer day and you can turn on a gas-fired turbine very quickly and ramp it up to meet summer peak, mostly for air conditioning load. Similarly, there's some winter peaking for uh, very cold days. But the reality is the technology is actually then the fuel source. So what's happened with the other side of technology, we're starting to see a real shift in economics. So what's driving this train now is economics. We are shutting coal plants in New Jersey, for example, not because of the Obama clean coal, uh, clean energy plant, because of economics. And the same thing is happening now with renewables. Renewables are now starting to scale because they're competitive with coal and natural gas at the burner tip, as we call it. That means when you burn it, and obviously with renewables, you don't burn anything, and it's a free fuel. So there's actually the economics are what's driving this train, plus the incentives that we mentioned before. But it's really the radical cost reduction across the board for those two renewables, biomass, uh, ocean energy, hydropower, still have some hiccups. But the reality is we've got a renaissance, an uplift in markets that we've never seen before. And what's happening in capital markets is that the project financiers are now seeing, hey, this is the same as oil and gas MLPs. 
I understand financial structuring. I can do big deals. I can do little deals. But the reality is there's a, there's a real wave of innovation occurring in financial technology as well that's starting to drive this. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, clearly you have become a passionate, uh, ardent supporter, participant player in impact investing. Uh, what do you see as being the requirements for growing impact investing, especially in the clean energy space, uh, to meet the coming demand for capital? The biggest hurdle is education. There is still a lot of thinking that clean energy is too expensive, that is too much risk. Um, there is some school of thought that institutional investors, that means large multi-million dollar investors, hundreds of million dollar investors are starting to get their feet wet in this area. But I really think it's education. And what I've done in that realm is I was an adjunct professor at Columbia University where I taught renewable energy project development and finance to second year grad students. I've lectured in 15, 20 universities around the country and several other countries around the world. And what I'm getting at is you need knowledge capital to make a business transformation. You can't do this in a vacuum. Young people are sustainable. At Columbia, nobody brought the uh, water bottle to my class. They all brought the containers. They, they do this in their DNA. It's part of their behavior. But the reality is when you start talking about investment, you do need the metrics of knowledge the ability to vet deals, the ability to scale technology, and that's coming. Um, I'm also seeing a lot of these students uh, around the world very committed to clean energy. They really want to work, and my joke is clean energy startups. They, they don't want to work in the fossil energy industry at all. Some do, but most don't. And so what I'm seeing is kind of a wave of innovation, finance, but an uplift in impact from millennials, and also something called gender lens investing. So we're seeing a, a very different metric. And I think, you know, the term impact investing, in my opinion, is a very good definition. And it's starting to scale in terms of real money. Uh, some statistics are about $6 trillion is now coming in the world of impact. And I think that's going to do a lot more. For example, renewable energy globally today is only 5% of energy. So it's about $330 billion energy is a $6 trillion business. We should be doing a trillion a year. And I think the world of impact where you want to make a difference on environment, social, and governance, the ESG as we call it, will actually move the needle faster because millennials are starting to inherit great wealth. There's a lot more interest in this sector, and it's young men and women. This used to be a male-dominated industry, not anymore. Well, one of the things that I think is exciting about impact investing in clean energy, especially in projects like solar and wind, is that the revenues are so predictable that you can get bond-like returns uh, and get comfortable with, you know, you can insure away, structure away almost all of the risk, and it's it's sort of like buying a bond, and, and the market loves that kind of stuff, it seems to me. Uh, are you seeing that, too, in your from your perspective? Yes, I am licensed under FINRA, so I can't say it's fixed income, but it is very bond-like. We're talking about 25 to 30-year performance under power purchase agreements that basically you're generating a lot of capital and paying off 
solar farms in year five, six, seven, wind farms similarly. So this is a very predictable model. That's why I think risk mitigation, something Wall Street's very familiar with, is now has arrived in insurance wraps, in EPC contractor bonding. Uh, this is this is so much different than a sol- the solar industry or the wind industry of 10 years ago. It's a new industry, and I think people really need to get more educated that this has a return model on an adjusted basis, which is unbelievable. It's, it, it is bond-like, but I can't use the word fixed income or guaranteed, but it's there. Yeah, really, really kind of safe stuff. One of the other interesting things I'm seeing in, in my global travels is that, and in my discussions with people around the world, it is that solar and wind are picking up the bulk of the uh, incremental demand for energy around the world. It, it looks to me like, uh, I guess in China, they're still building coal-fired power plants, but but in Africa and in, in much of Asia, what I see are wind farms and solar panels going up. What's your take on that? Are, are, are they picking up more of that growing demand for energy? Well, that yes. Uh, in terms of project finance, the big dollar numbers, renewable energy has arrived. It's passing other forms of energy. However, you still have the issue, as I mentioned before, of intermittency. So you're seeing a lot of natural gas capacity also being built out in Asia, in Europe, in Africa. And I think another piece of this is I look at the 55 island nations, which are totally dependent on diesel fuel and residual fuel oil. You're going to see a tremendous amount of uplift there in solar energy, particularly married to natural gas or married to diesel backup generation. But it's kind of a twofold thing. This is kind of a a real awakening that market-driven solutions with technology cost reductions really equal a, a world where you know 1.3 billion people do not have access to energy. That is going to radically change in the next 15 years. Everyone will have access to energy in something called microgrids, small scale. Here in New York, where I grew up, we have a company called Consolidated Edison. What people don't know is Consolidated Edison was the consolidation of bankrupt little utilities in New York City. When Mr. Edison lit Water Street in 1882, he lit 400 lamps and he had 85 customers. So we're going to see two models, large-scale power stations, but also small-scale self-generation. It's called distributed energy resources. It is going to light the world. There's going to be tremendous opportunity for clean water, cell phone towers, uh, just a lot of opportunity based on energy as the pathway to economic development because of costs. And how does hydrogen fit into all of this? Well, hydrogen is plentiful, first of all, and there are really two easy ways to make it. One is called the hydrolysis of water. You break down H2O into H2 and O, or you take the methane natural gas molecule, which has carbon, CH4, and break that down. It's much cleaner to do the water pathway. And what you're starting to see is the beginning of a hydrogen infrastructure in the United States, from basically Vancouver to L.A. and Boston to Washington, we're building hydrogen service stations. Secondly, you're going to see energy storage of hydrogen. The thing about hydrogen It's not the Hindenburg disaster. 
which I get a lot of pushback on. It's actually lighter than air. When it is as an accident, it vents because it's lighter than air. It is a plentiful resource. And I actually think we're probably five to 10 years away from the hydrogen economy generated, ironically, by solar and wind power. So something called solar hydrogen. And you'll see basically renewables begetting renewables. It's the most interesting uh, flux. There's, there's a lot of change going on in technology, but this has arrived. The automakers already have the cars. I've driven them. Uh, the reality is, once again, consumers need to be educated that hydrogen is a better fix than an electric vehicle. I know people don't want to hear that, but the reality is it's cleaner. because The tailpipe emission is water vapor. So basically you, like, no you like fuel cells better, better than batteries uh, for a, a power yeah. source for, for vehicles. Uh, why? Frankly, because the, the, the emissions. I'm worried about greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions. We passed 400 parts per million ppm. That's now going forward. For my entire career working on climate change, which is almost three decades, I was always looking at 450 parts per million for mitigation. Now, some climate, I was with a bunch of scientists yesterday, and they were saying, well, it's over, turn the lights off. Well, I'm sorry, I get up in the morning, I have hope. And the reality is we can do this. We can scale technology. We can reduce fossil energy usage and use it, in my opinion, in a much more efficient, environmentally benign way and transition to clean energy. But the the outlier is climate change. But you like fuel cells because they generate no carbon emissions and the uh, battery electrics may generate uh, carbon emissions to generate that electricity. Is that, am I? Yeah, that's part of it. I'm not against lithium ion batteries. I think we, you know, in, in Brooklyn, Queens, they're building a microgrid with fuel cells and batteries and solar. You know, these things can be integrated. Uh, so it's not just one off. Uh, but, but the bigger picture is we can move to a hydrogen economy faster than people realize. Now, that's very contrarian. You know, maybe it's 4% market penetration of vehicles by 2025 in the U.S., but it's coming because the infrastructure is being put in place and the technology is already there to produce the hydrogen. Well, the so it's, oil- it's done. The oil companies must love the idea of a hydrogen economy because it gives them a I, way I, to participate going forward. Don't you think the oil companies would love a hydrogen economy? Sure, of course. I mean, they, they are energy companies. They are starting to see that. Shell and Total, very big European energy companies, now have divisions that do new energy. What is that? Renewables, hydrogen, energy storage. They're there. They think very long-term. Energy, and I work for a multinational oil company. They think in 40-year cycles. And I won't be around 40 years from now, but the reality is we will have a much cleaner and greener world because of technology, because energy is the world's largest industry. We need it for civilization, economic development. And like I said, I think everybody will have access in the next 15 years. Yeah. Well, Peter, I'm, I'm so thoroughly enjoying this discussion. We're running a little bit long, but I want to ask you three quick questions. Be, be quick with me on this. So uh, you are a leader in the industry. You are a role model to many. Who do you admire as a role model? Abraham Lincoln. Why? Because he's someone who had vision, 
tenacity, and courage under adversity and did not have any malice toward anyone. So he's, and my dad's had a picture of Abraham Lincoln in his office. So yes, Abraham Lincoln. Great. Now, a lot of people feel passionate about the environment. Most of them go to work every day at a regular job, not having anything to do with the environment. Why did you devote your life to this? You know, a hedge fund manager about 10 years ago called me mission driven. So be it. So I'm on a mission from God. Uh, It was just the right thing to do, starting with taking lead out of gasoline. Some of it's been happenstance. I've fallen into things that just began. And so that, and I was always very intellectually curious, but my game has always been to work with the dirtiest industry in the world and clean it up. And that mission is being accomplished through many good people. And it's taken 40 plus years, but that's the reality. Things, you know, I learned in grad school, two things, incremental change and hardball politics. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. Great. Last question, Peter. Uh, we ask all of our guests for what we call an impact hack, uh, some tip that would help us to do more good in the world. What's your impact hack? Be curious. One thing I have learned is put yourself out on a limb. People come to me with all kinds of ideas, technologies, needs for mentorship, and be intellectually curious. Don't be closed-minded. That's going to change the world. Fantastic. Peter, before you go, tell us how people can learn more about you and your work and connect with you personally. Well, there's three ways. One is at Fusaro Tweets. That's my Twitter account. One is at Global Change Associates, one of my websites. And we also run the Wall Street Green Summit now in its 16th year. So they're all on the web. Fantastic. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. We wish you every success in greening up the world. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Let's do some good. At the intersection of financial services and social media, Gate Global Impact, GGI, uses new market infrastructure to facilitate investments in organizations that deliver a societal, environmental, and or a cause-related benefit in addition to a financial return. Seed Equity Ventures is a registered broker-dealer with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and a member of both FINRA and SIPC, providing investment banking services to startups globally. Seed Equity's mission is to find the best and brightest entrepreneurs and connect them with global investors. Clean Energy Advisors creates investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector that provide clients with a predictable income, preservation of capital, and positive impact. Clean Energy Advisors is committed to providing clients with investment opportunities with both market rates of return and measurable impact. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show 
to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.